98% of people totally ignore Revelation because they just can't understand what's going on. Uh, and 2% of people are obsessed by it. And I don't want to uh, have either of those things happen to us. And particularly when we look at the world, we look at what's going on in the world with the droughts, the bushfires, the floods, and now the coronavirus. And lots of people are saying, is this the apocalypse? Where is our world going? What is happening in our world? What can we count on? Where do we find hope? And so we've begun looking at this book of Revelation in which God shows us the world as it really is. Past, present and future. And what it shows us, the big picture of the book of Revelation, is that in the midst of tragedy and suffering and spiritual warfare, we find the battle's cry of victory. What it means to conquer because Jesus conquered. The one who conquers is the one who trusts in the one who conquered on our behalf. And we're going to be looking at this uh, almost chapter by chapter uh, over this this year, over the next uh, couple of months. I think it's really important for us to look at this, to understand it, to understand what the symbols mean and to understand clearly what God is saying to us. And uh, we find ourselves in the last three of the, the, the seven churches of the letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches. And these seven churches... Uh, They're not unlike a school report, of course, a progress report, and uh, that can feel uh, exciting to receive if you can look back and remember your old school reports. Or some of you are at school now, high school, some of you are excited to receive those, some of you have a bit of fear and trepidation. Uh, But the good thing about a report, the good thing about a health checkup, is that it shows you where your strengths are. It shows you that they can be recognised and developed. But it also shows you where there's weaknesses and how they can be corrected. Very helpful for us. And so what we've been doing, particularly these last couple of weeks, is I've encouraged each of you to fill in the spiritual health checkup. Now, some of you may have just ignored that or thrown it in the bin. Some of you have uh, given it back to me very bravely. Uh, Well done. But I do want to encourage everyone to take the time to reflect on your own spiritual life at this time because this is Jesus' word to us and we want to take the opportunity to do that very carefully. Uh, you'll notice in the sermon outline here, so you can, I've given this to you so you can write notes and you can listen well and write down anything you think God is saying to you or showing as you go along today. In these last three churches, we meet a church that needs a defibrillator. Oh, does everyone know that we have a defibrillator here in church? Very exciting. Um, we have a defibrillator here. Um, good to know, though, it, it won't give you a shock unless you need it, okay? It's an automatic defibrillator. This is what they use in the hospitals now. They don't do that old-fashioned, you know, clear, uh, that sort of thing. This is what they use. These automa- It talks to you and everything. Those of us who've done first aid training and other medicos will know. Uh, and we do have it. And these things save lives, and it's one of the reasons, I know they're expensive, but uh, I encourage the parish council and wardens to, that this is something we should have in our church because if someone needs it, it makes all the difference in the world. There's first aid kits here and at the back of church as well as fire extinguishers. We'll just do a little, you know, safety presentation <laughs> while we're here. Uh, everyone knows that that's where they are and there's fire escapes and exits, so, you know, you get all that sort of thing. This first church, uh, the church in Sardis, they need a defibrillator. They're basically dead, And they need to wake up and live. The second church, they're hanging on by their fingernails. The third church are so comfortable and affluent, they need to rocket up them. And these seven churches, they represent um, 
kind of aspects that we can all relate to. They represent the universal church. Seven, if you remember, is the number of completeness. And so these letters actually speak to us here today. They apply to us. They make sense because the gospel speaks to gospel communities. Sin separates and divides people. The gospel brings people together. When I reflect back on what God has done over these past eight years since I've been the rector, it's seeing how God has brought people together. And that's not always easy. In John's time, for many of the people living in John's day, it was politically dangerous to gather together. You could be rounded up by the Roman authorities. You could be dobbed in by the the Jews at the synagogue up the road. You could be killed So it would have been much easier just to have a nice private faith, much more safe, much more convenient, but not what God was calling them to. Fast forward to today. We still face temptations, but different temptations. We have life pretty good, but there can be lots of good things that will take us away from community, being here together. It's the gospel that you restores and unites us as a gospel community. It's sin that fragments us. So what's Jesus saying to us here? I want us to focus particularly on the last church. I think it strikes a chord for us who live here in Sydney. And it has one of my absolute favourite verses in the Bible. You see I've printed it there. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. It's a wonderful Verse. And if you hear nothing else today, I hope you hear this verse. It's a word of grace. No matter where you're at in your life, spiritually speaking, at this moment, this is Jesus' word to you. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come to him and eat with him and he with me. No matter what you've done, no matter whether you think you're a good Christian or a bad Christian or not a Christian at all, you can hear this verse and you can welcome Jesus in. And he'll change your life forever. I think we need to hear this verse. Because it comes in this letter to Laodicea. Where Jesus the doctor gives his diagnosis on the spiritual condition. And I think we need to ask ourselves, is this true of us? Or to what extent is this true of us? The things that are going on in this church. Um, Three things we learn. The symptom, the underlying disease and the remedy. Uh, You'll see... The first symptom, and if you see on the notes there, is lukewarmness. What is lukewarmness spiritually? Well, contrast, have a look at verse 19. Look at the remedy. What's the remedy for spiritual lukewarmness? Be earnest and repent. If you want to be not lukewarm, you need to be earnest. Now, the Greek word, the original Greek there is zealous. A lukewarm Christian is a Christian without zeal for God. What is that? Well, when you come to the New Testament, it is written in Greek originally, and when you come to that word that's translated there, zealous, you can translate it two ways. You can translate it zealous or jealous, but they actually mean the same thing. A zealous is generally a positive. Jealousy is normally seen as a negative thing. How are they the same thing? Well, when you're jealous, you set your love intensely on someone and if it's you on yourself on your ego on your reputation if that is the thing that you love the most and want to have the most guess what you'll be jealous of other people trying to get ahead of you it's a bad thing but if you set your love intensely on someone else 
If you become jealous for that person, for their good, for their growth, their happiness, that is what we call Christian love, that's a good thing. A lukewarm person is not a hypocrite. A lukewarm person is someone who is believing and kind of doing what they should as a Christian. They might even come to church, but the supreme passion of their heart, their highest love has been set on something other than God. Something or someone other than God. And so there's no real passion in their walk with God. There's no fire in their spiritual life. And so Jesus says two extremely negative things about this. He says, I'd rather you be cold or hot than lukewarm. And that is extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, it makes sense to say, I wish you were hot. I wish you were on fire for God. But he'd rather you be spiritually cold than lukewarm. But I think, if we think about it for a moment, we can see why this is true in churches everywhere. It's the ones who've never believed at all. And when they come to believe, they're the most... They're so keen, they're, they're zealous, they're keen for God. Wasn't it wonderful last year to see our friends baptised, come to faith, and to see their passion to want to serve God, and their whole life has been transformed and changed. They've now got hope and life and everything. It was palpable. What a great encouragement to those of us who've been Christians for longer. There are Christians who've been raised in churches, been there a long time, and if you question their beliefs and behaviour, they'd be offended They're Christian by culture, not conviction. By culture, not conviction. They're blind to the wonder, to the beauty of the gospel. Lukewarm people are not changed by the love of Jesus. It just sort of floats over them. It's not the controlling principle of their lives. It's not, the, it's not the passion, it's not the fire that drives everything in their life. Lukewarm people are one step further from God than people who are cold, people who are not even Christian at all. And that is very scary. So the second thing he says is, well, let's look at this underlying condition. Christians who are lukewarm, says Jesus, nauseate me. They make me want to vomit. He says, I'll vomit you out. And that's incredibly personal and hard to hear. So we need to ask, why is Jesus so serious about this? Why is this so important? Well, we need to understand the disease that's going on here. Laodicea was a city there in Turkey. It's a textile centre, beautiful clothes made of black wool. You know, it had sort of the the Milan reputation. You you wanted to go there for fashion, right? High fashion, black wool. And it was the financial centre. It's kind of like the Wall Street as well. It was so wealthy. When it got devastated by an earthquake... They didn't need Rome to help them rebuild. They just rebuilt the city themselves. They were so wealthy. And thirdly, it's a medical centre, and especially for eye treatments. And Jesus says, you are successful, you are wealthy, and you are healthy. But actually, Jesus says, you are naked, you are poor, and you're blind. You don't realise it, but you're naked, you're poor, and you're blind. Spiritual nakedness is that metaphor. This is a symbol for guilt and shame. Spiritual poverty is a metaphor for that impotence, doing nothing, making no difference. You don't change your position or your mind on anything. You just do what you want to do, whether God agrees with it or not. You're trying to make yourself a better person. You think you're doing pretty okay, but you're spiritually poor. And thirdly, spiritually blind. You cannot see your need for Jesus. You cannot see your need for sheer grace. But if these are Christians, 
If these people who are in this church in Laodicea, if they're Christians, shouldn't they know that? Well, some do, but some don't because of what's going on in the world around them. They should know this. They should know that. But what Jesus is saying, there is a direct link between being wealthy, being brilliant, being healthy and having high achievement and spiritual lukewarmness. So why is that? Because when you are really brilliant and when you're really accomplished and when you're making lots of money and when you're really successful in the world, you might say on the outside, yeah, I'm a sinner. I know, you know, I'm not perfect. But existentially, on the inside, the reality of that hasn't gripped your heart. Your need for Jesus beyond everything else. And as a result, the knowledge of Jesus' love isn't a miracle that electrifies you, that moves you to tears, that drives the passions of your life. Even though you might say you're a sinner, you don't feel like a sinner at all. You actually think you're a pretty good person. And if you're a Christian, God's pretty lucky to have you on his team. You haven't experienced the miracle of grace. That's the reason why there's a link between affluent and being brilliant and comfortable, being high achievers and lukewarmness. It's very hard, spiritually speaking, to overcome being smart. And it's very hard, spiritually speaking, to overcome being well off and being accomplished. Are you making the connections here? I think we can relate very easily to Laodiceans. Too often we're struggling with lukewarmness as much as the Laodiceans. And aren't these often the things that we want for our children as well? Won't this be a challenge for them as well? Martin Luther King said this. Have a look at the quote. It's just on the second page of your notes. Martin Luther King wrote in his influential letter from Birmingham jail, there was a time when the church was very powerful. In the time when the early Christians rejoiced at being deemed worthy to suffer for what they believed. In those days, the church was not merely a thermometer that recorded the ideas and the principles of popular opinion. It was a thermostat that transformed the mores of society. Small in number, they were big in commitment. They were too God-intoxicated to be intimidated. And by their effort and example, they brought an end to such ancient evils as infanticide and gladiatorial conquests. Things are different now. The judgment of God is upon the church as never before. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity, forfeit the loyalty of millions, and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Every day I meet young people whose disappointment with the church has turned into outright disgust. And here's where we are. There is an affluence that comes from living in Sydney that results in a pride, in a self-sufficiency that spills out from our accomplishments in the world, in our spiritual lives. And hence, all the anxiety that we've seen in our city with all the things that are going on, when, when all the things seem to be taken away with the bushfires, the drought, and now the coronavirus. What are we going to do? This world that we've built for ourselves that seemed to be working so well isn't quite what we thought it might be, and the politicians can't solve that. It makes it very difficult for us to be changed and transformed by the message of the gospel when we're so caught up 
in the wealth and the success and the health that we enjoy. But the gospel should be the controlling factor in our lives. We should be zealous for God. We should be jealous for God's name. To be jealous for someone is to set your love so intensely on them that there's this explosion of energy as you long to serve and honour and give them all the glory. But we don't sacrifice and so we don't change the world when we sacrifice, when we're zealous for God, jealous for his name. The gospel has transformed us. How do we get that? Well, at the end of the letter, Dr. Jesus gives four prescriptions, four solutions that everyone in our world needs to hear. Friends, this is what we need. This is what our community needs. This is the answers that we're looking for. The first medicine is to grasp salvation is by grace. It's a gift. He says, come and get from me a white robe. From me is the important thing there. From me is very important because remember when they had the earthquake, they didn't need anybody's help. Jesus says, come from me. You have to get a white robe. What's a white robe? What does that symbolise? It's the life that's been cleansed from all the sin, all the brokenness, all the, all the stuff that is ruining our world and our lives. And Jesus says, come to me and you'll have a white robe. You'll be acceptable because I've washed you clean. Not because of what you've done. Everyone in our world is looking to clothe their nakedness by doing stuff, by trying to accomplish stuff. We work so hard, we worry so much that these things become our garments. And Jesus says, stop looking at those things. It's destroying you. It's making you lukewarm. It's stopping you receiving my love or me giving you yours. It's by grace. Receive, get from me a white robe. Secondly, The way you get out of lukewarmness is through suffering. He says, the gold I'm going to give you is refined by fire. Do you see how he says that? Refined by fire. Now, I wish I didn't have to tell you this. You get it all through the book of Revelation and all through the New Testament. And if we see Jesus' life, we probably realise it's actually true that if we follow Jesus, there'll be suffering. When we follow Jesus, the cross comes before the resurrection. And I hate to tell you this, but if you want to get out of lukewarmness, if you want to have a life transformed by grace, you're probably going to have to walk through some difficult times and trust in Jesus that he is by your side and will never leave you and will always be with you. Third thing, you have to be open to his love. One of the most amazing things about this letter is that Though in the beginning he says, you nauseate me, you make me want to vomit. Later, see what he says. You see the word of grace. He said, those I love, I rebuke. If he didn't care about us, he wouldn't tell us what we need to know. He tells us because we care. Just like that teacher who writes in the school report something which we know is true. And if we listen to, it will make all the difference in the world. Jesus is saying to you and me, my loving purposes for you haven't changed. I still love you and behold, I stand at the door and knock. I stand at the door and knock. That is the most amazing verse in the Bible. In ancient times, to be invited in was to be invited into intimate friendship, intimate fellowship. 
What is he saying? He's saying this is written to Christians who are invited to bring this deeper fellowship into their lives. So friends, when you go this week, when you go out today and you sit down and pray, I want to ask you to seek deep fellowship with Jesus. To not just worry about things or come to Jesus and give him the shopping list of things that you want him to do for you to make your life happy and healthy and successful, but to really come to him and say, I want to experience your love. I want you in my life as the driving passion and zeal. I want to know you and adore you from the very core of my being. And Jesus says, if you ever ask me that, I'm already at the door. I'm knocking at the door. Just let me in. And lastly, finally, this is the most amazing thing. He says, I'll give you the right to sit with me on my throne. This is, a, this is an amazing picture. Jesus is ruling the world. He's upholding the world. Every breath we have is a gift from him now, right? And he died on the cross and he rose the dead so that you and I can be with him in eternity forever, ruling. When you become a Christian, you become a child of God in the royal family. He brings you and he sets you on the throne. It's what he did. He earned it for us. He did everything for us. He conquered so we can conquer. I was stripped naked on the cross so you can have a white robe, says Jesus. I was impoverished so you can have spiritual wealth. I was blinded so you can see. I was so jealous for you that I set my love on you and even death could not stop me. How can you relate to someone who gave themselves so utterly for you without utterly giving yourself to them? To only go halfway, to only be lukewarm is not to give him your to not give him yours just it's not just an offense to moral sensibility it's a crucifixion of the intelligence it's as stupid as it is wicked this morning i beg you i implore you i encourage you give yourself wholly to jesus let's pray heavenly father we are so thankful that you came into the world to do for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, that you've conquered so we can conquer. And I thank you, Lord, that no matter where we are today, we can see that you stand at the door and you knock and that you long for us to come and to eat with you and to be with you forever. I pray that would be true for each and every one of us this day. In Jesus' precious name, amen.